Welcome to the Digitally Native podcast, a podcast that explores what it means to be digital and to live digital lives. I'm your host, Fungai, and together we will explore a range of topics and trends around digital and social media and digital innovation. So grab a drink, buckle up, and let's get right into it. Hello, 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 and welcome to this week's episode of the podcast. I hope that March is doing you good and that you have acclimatized to this new year. You know, it takes me a few months to actually get into the swing of things, and I feel like now, (laughs) midway through March, I can honestly surrender 2022 and accept that we are actually in 2023. Um, I had the privilege the last week to be on a panel, um, a really great panel, which was coordinated by the African Leadership Centre. They're based in Kenya, in Nairobi, and King's College London. And this was a panel for International Women's Day, and it was discussing how to bridge the tech divide. This is a long-going conversation about how to get women on board with technology and to feel comfortable enough to use technological tools. And I think what I found particularly interesting was how I think a lot of the conversation tends towards what we can do with tech uh, to to make tech less misogynistic or gender-friendly or, you know, the kinds of language that we would hope that our digital cultures would be healthier um, and more progressive. And I found myself continuously going back to something that I talk about on this podcast, which is that technology in itself is largely value-free. That's not to say it's entirely value-free, but, you know, technology is hardware, it's devices, it's, it's you know, man-made goods, It is human beings who I believe give technology its meaning or um, its associations. And so for me, it just took me back into the place where I'm constantly talking about digital cultures and about the importance of unpacking when we talk about digitality and digital rights and digital movements and digital innovation in general that we realize or we unpack at the same time as we unpack things like algorithms and artificial intelligence, which are you know obviously at the moment very popular for people to have conversations about, but to simultaneously unpack the, the human interactions that are happening as a result of technology and um, how those shape technology and how technology is used in different contexts. So uh, I, you know, my point was the people who come online and are misogynistic or, you know, target women with a lot of hate speech and other things, trolling, etc. I don't believe that, you know, those are people who are not representative of the cultures we live in offline because there is misogyny, there is violence, and that violence in, in the offline world is not necessarily, um, well, it's not digital in the offline world, obviously. It's, it's physical, it's mental, it's psychological, it's verbal. 
And so every everything that happens in our online reality is a reflection of our offline reality. And we give meaning to technology through the lenses of our values um, and ideas and ideologies that reign within our cultures. So I, you know, I just found myself being like, you know, this is my gospel. I, I think there has tended to always be a sort of, I don't want to use the word marginalization, but I'll use that word, marginalization of the cultural perspectives on technology. We tend to prefer big data sets and nice diagrams that show how things shift and grow. Um, but I think there's so much richness in us looking at digital cultures. And that's exactly what we're doing today and every day of this podcast. Um, uh, today we are discussing dating apps. Uh, now, these are quite interesting depending on who you talk to um, and, and their perspectives about dating apps. I think there tends to be people who are very reserved about being on a dating app and there's people who are very very you know free to be on dating apps and try them and see how it goes um, especially if they're not able to interact with people in in the offline world uh, but then I think there's this really interesting thing to look at which is uh, dating apps on the African continent now I'm not an authoritative voice on anything to do with dating apps uh, I did try to go online and see what's out there to get a sense of what's happening in different parts of the continent. There's there's some information out there, but I think it's not comprehensive enough for me to make any deductions from. However, I will say that uh, there are things that uh, dating apps generally bring up that are important or interesting to discuss, especially from this perspective, from this position uh, of Africa and Africans. Um, and so I found this, uh, this article by worth.com and they talk about you know, the different dating apps and the concept of dating and how that's very different um, in parts of Africa and Asia, because the cultures are very different there. But before we just jump into what these articles say, well, that article and other articles say, I guess I just would like to give a bit of a run through dating apps. Now, I'm not going to give you a comprehensive list of all the dating apps out there. There's a whole lot of them. But I think the most popular ones that most people know about would be Tinder, Bumble, um, okay, OK Cupid, and Hinge, and perhaps some people would know about Grindr. Uh, I won't go into too much detail about each one of them, but then I think Tinder is probably uh, one of the easier apps out there. It's, you know, most dating apps work in the same way. You put a profile up. And you go through other profiles and you match with the profiles. Well, you, you swipe. I always get this confused. Swipe right. 
swipe left well you swipe one way <laughs> to 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 show interest in a profile and if the same if the person that you're interested in swipes the same way to show interest in you that's a match and then you can start a conversation from there onwards uh, and so I think Tinder is one of the simpler ones in that regard. And um, Bumble is somewhat different. It's a similar process, but it's a very different um, engagement process in that if uh, a, a male and a female engage and match, the first move is made by the female user versus the male user making the first move, which as far as I understand it, Bumble felt that that was a way uh, to give women power and empowerment to decide who they wanted to talk to because um, if it happened in the ways that other, other apps work like Tinder, it would be either partner starting the conversation and, you know, sometimes that doesn't go really well for the female um, participants. And so it's just giving a power because I guess at every point of using a dating app, you still have the choice to uh, kind of take a step back. Uh, you can match with someone, but you can match with a whole lot of people at the same time and then decide that, hey, you know, I don't actually want to have a conversation with this person because this person is more interesting to me to have a conversation with. And so those are just some of the stopgap measures that um, Bumble has to, to protect women or to make women feel safer on the app. And then there's other apps um, that are seen as, I suppose, more serious, I guess Bumble is one of the more serious ones. I don't think most people see Tinder as a very serious dating app. It's It tends to have a reputation as an app for people to, who are looking for something casual and short-term. Uh, but then all the other apps seem to have, you know, a bit of a kind of unique selling point or something about them that uh, that they try to differentiate themselves with or buy. Uh, I think Hinge tries to make uh, itself sound like it's about more serious um, engagement. Um, people wanting to ask burning questions or putting in their profile burning things that they think about. And, you know, it's a, I think it's a little bit more philosophical or, I guess, uh, it's just more intellectual, I'd say. And so, you know, every, every app is very different. And then I mentioned Grindr. Um, and Grindr has been popular, particularly within the LGBTQ community. Uh, and I may get this wrong, but then my understanding is that Grindr has been used particularly by gay men. Um, some years ago, I got to moderate a panel discussion about uh, using dating apps and security for vulnerable communities and groups. And I do remember one of the participants uh, being a, a gay man from Kenya, and he was talking about his use of Grindr and how there's, you know, just such a minefield of different things that happen when you're using it in a space where uh, homophobia is so rife. 
Um, nonetheless, I got, I got the impression and I've gotten the impression from talking to different people that Grindr is particularly popular with gay men. Uh, and, you know, so it's, it's a different app in that way that it's particularly geared towards people who are out and very open about their sexuality and are looking for other people who are also similarly um, interested in uh, dating or, you know, meeting and engaging and interacting. And so obviously with all of this as a little bit of background, um, we can see, and this is just a few of the apps that exist. There's so many more that exist out there. Uh, but then I think before you can even put a sense to how these apps would fare on the African continent, it's really important to, as well to think about the dating culture. Um, because ultimately these apps are made in the West for largely Western audiences, as are most social media applications and um, devices and technologies that we are using. Um, it it it's always feels a little bit awful to say it, but they're not necessarily made with users from the global south in mind. Well, maybe that's not entirely true because there's parts of the global south that are big enough markets that make big companies care enough about their user experiences. So I'm thinking of countries, for instance, like, like uh, I almost said Ghana, uh, India. You know, India has a population of over a billion and, you know, it's a very technologically oriented society. And so if you want to make an inroad in tech globally, that's a huge market that's just sitting there waiting to be um, explored. Um, because that's, you know, I mean, if there's about 8 billion of us on this planet, you're looking at um, over 10% of the, pop the world's population in one country. Um, and then, you know, there's other countries that are also hotspots or places of interest because of their population figures. I'd say on the African continent, Nigeria uh, is that place. Last week, I think I said that their population is just under 200 million. It's actually just over 200 million. And so that's a big, big, big market of people um, to, to be focusing on and tapping into. Um, so I think with that context, it's really important to say that none of this is entirely to say that the Global South is never a thought process for Western companies creating Western digital uh, products and services. However, I would not say that uh, this is their main priority. They are largely creating uh, applications and tools that speak to uh, contemporary Western society and contemporary Western lifestyles. And so obviously dating has become this very difficult thing across the board, really, because everybody is working so much more than previously or previous generations. Everyone, um, you know, ultimately to keep, for instance, a household going, uh, there's just been this shift where perhaps previously you know, women stayed more at home 
and um, took on more domestic roles. Not that women don't take on domestic roles still, even when they work. However, um, there were more stay-at-home wives and mothers in previous generations, and we don't see that being the case anymore. We have more women in the workforce. We have more dual-income households. The cost of living, uh, the cost of raising families, all that stuff has become imp almost impossible uh, to maintain on one salary with um, another partner providing reproductive uh, labor at home. It's more shifting towards both parties going to work and trying to find someone who can support the reproductive labor, which is taking care of the children, etc. Um, and so across the board, this is something we're noticing, but then this is particularly uh, rampant within Western society where the work-life balance has become so out of, out of sync uh, that, you know, conversations around burnout, stress, mental health issues have become so much more common uh, as a result of those, those factors. Uh, I'd say, you know, the United States as a country within what we would call late stage capitalism uh, or capitalism that, you know, is just has gone to, I guess, it's radical extreme, you know, countries that don't have social security nets or safety nets like, you know, medical access, health, you know, healthcare and those kinds of things that are uh, a marker, I guess, of Western societies, you know, I think you'd find that in most countries in Europe, um, in Australia, um, and other countries within the Western world, that there is uh, more of those safety nets. Whereas in the United States, that is not so much the case. Um, it's, it's very market-oriented. It's almost run like a big corporate or a big company, and you know, you have to work really hard to be able to keep up with certain things that are taken, I guess, somewhat for granted in different parts of the Western world. And so obviously, if one is working so hard to pay their bills, pay their bills and keep on top of all their, you know, needs, dating becomes something that is more and more difficult to, to do because there is no time. And there is no, uh, yeah, there's no physical environment that would allow you to meet other people because if you're always at work, you know, it follows that you're not going to be out in, in a club having drinks or whatever it is. And even if you are in the club having drinks, it just might not be the same culture that used to exist before of courtship where you, you know, approached a woman and you, um, whatever you did. It's just a different culture. It's a different time. And, you know, this then f stretches across the Western world um, in different ways. Even with social security nets or safety nets, there's still this culture of working and um, constantly paying off debt and, you know, running into credit, uh, you know, all these things to do with people living off credit cards and all kinds of things and, you know, having massive credit debt 
and having to pay that off. So, I mean, these are not, it's not all doom and gloom. There are, you know, obviously pockets of society, Western society that are not facing this extreme uh, overwork. But then as a generality, I think it's a marker of where Western society is right now. And so the normal processes of meeting people and courtship have become uh, less and less um, possible. And so people turn to dating apps because the, the human need for companionship and partnership still exists. And so this becomes a way to use technology in this way that we already use it to relate, but to relate towards um, partnership. Uh, and so obviously these things work in a certain way that mimics what dating in Western cultures looks like, which is essentially something that happens between two individuals until they are ready to introduce their families to each other or their friends to each other and, you know, take it to whatever level that they're taking it to. Um, but then ultimately what the exchanges that we see on these dating apps uh, are, are doing is mimicking what uh, providers of these applications believe is the dating culture within these societies. And so obviously they are more popular in these societies, but then if you take them to places where the dating culture is somewhat different, and this is when you look at places in the global south, parts of Africa, um, South America, and um, Asia, a, a dating culture, a different dating culture may exist. And that dating culture can be a little bit more communal, a little bit more conservative, uh, a little less public in certain ways. And so this is where you start to see some of these discrepancies or these hindrances to people taking up dating apps. Now, I don't have an extensive list of why people might not be on these dating apps, um, but I think you know, you, I can allude to a few of those. And, you know, if you have more that you can think of, please do share them. Uh, who knows, we might do a part two or a follow-up on, on this episode. Um, but then I think one of the things that uh, makes dating apps struggle in places like the African continent is obviously that they're not contextual to the different dating cultures uh, that are within the continent. And those can be very different. Um, like we said, uh, some some cultures are far more communal, uh, and there there are some cultures where you don't actually choose your own partner. Someone else, your family members, elders would uh, find a partner for you, and that's you know something that we see, for instance, in Indian culture still. Um, and so, in other parts of the continent, and you, you find people or peoples who do not follow the norm of an individual looking out for their own partner, but rather that the partnership is more um, initiated by the parents or elders. I think the other thing that we can see uh, could be a challenge with these dating apps is the publicity of them. Um, basically, you're putting yourself out there in a public way and uh, you, it's far much easier to find someone that you might know on a dating app in a more communal society. Whereas I think in a Western society where people have become far more atomized into, you know, either their nuclear family or just themselves as individuals, 
I guess you could go on a dating app and not meet anyone you knew within your town or your city. Whereas I think that's a little, little less uh, or a little more difficult um, in societies that are far more communal. The likelihood of you having an app, a profile and someone knowing you uh, from a physical engagement are higher. And so that can make people feel like, oh, that's, you know, too much information. I do not want uh, to bump into people I know. I do not want to potentially bump into my boss or, you know, someone who could set off an alarm bell to people and say, hey, you know, he's on a dating app. She's on a dating app, um, you know, bumping into a relative or something like that or an ex even. And so I think the publicity of it has its its um, its challenges for people who are from conservative communal societies. They wouldn't want to be out there in that way. I think then there's the other issues. The the countries with contexts of scams or digital uh, fraud or things like that. And I think Nigeria has a big four one one scam um, history. Um, where we all know, I think, you know, at some point you may have received an email or some kind of communication that purports to be someone who's in Nigeria, who's someone important and needs you to release some funds so that you can become a millionaire or something like that. Um, so 411 scams are very, very common in certain places. And so I'm just assuming just because that is the culture there, that perhaps people might feel less of an inclination to be on a dating app because you just don't know. The person you are engaging with could be a scammer. And that's across the board. I think people have a very big reservation about uh, digital scams. Uh, and we saw that last year with this, if you happen to watch this Netflix documentary, The Tinder Swindler, that doesn't just sit within the African context or the global South. I mean, the Tinder swindler was um, operating in Europe and he managed to uh, swindle a lot of women of their money, their hard earned savings. And um, so this is something that, you know, if you're watching that sort of documentary and saying, hey, this thing is, if this thing is being used these ways in Western countries, you know what? <laughs> I'm not even going to try it because, you know, that's where it comes from. And if it's having those kinds of problems or those kinds of effects or impacts, uh, you know, I, I, I just don't know that I want to be on that thing, you know. So I think those kinds of things start to come into people's minds. Um, but then, you know, Africa and Africans are not exempt from this uh, challenge of the work-life balance that's becoming increasingly difficult uh, for everyone. Like I just said, uh, households can no longer sustain with, you know, usually households can no longer sustain with a single income. The cost of living is going up, and this is globally. And, you know, things are just really, really difficult financially for a lot of people. So everyone is working, trying to find uh, the finances to to finance their lives and their lifestyles. And so in a similar way, as much as African societies may be far more communal, there is more of that atomization happening. There is more of that isolation where a person can go to work and come home and not see anyone, maybe see people over the weekend and that's it. And even then, you know, it's 
sort of surface level conversation. And so the, the, the opportunity to find a person or to court somebody for a relationship or whatever it is, you know, that the other person is, is expecting from the, the interaction is becoming more and more difficult. And you see a lot more of digital engagement anyway. People are using different apps. They're using Facebook. They're using Twitter. They are using um, Instagram and other spaces to share stories about their lives or about what's going on with them. And you do sometimes hear of stories of people who do meet um, and pursue long-term partnership from Facebook or from a Twitter thread or a conversation, you know, people, the, the idea slide into your DMs, you know, that's, you know, about shooting your shot through social media. And I feel like maybe that's a bit safer for a lot of people. I don't know what it is. Perhaps it's, it's the idea that there's, I guess, a, an idea of a, a higher respectability because I think respectability politics also play a role in this, in that, you know, people do not want to seem, I suppose, desperate or very public and vocal about their desires or their intentions. That's, I think, considered in a lot of African cultures an unattractive trait. One should just flow with things, with life, and not be too, I guess, I don't want to use the word aggressive, but I'll use it because I can't think of another word. I don't want to be too aggressive in, in their intent. You should, you know, just kind of be moving with everyone else and minding your own business and love will fall on your lap eventually because if you are you, you know, someone's going to be attracted to you. And so I think there is this, this kind of idea of, you know, being a little too forceful about things, I think especially for women. So I think women on dating apps are probably perceived in very interesting ways by even people who are looking for suitors on these dating apps because women are generally not meant to be uh, seen asking for something like a relationship or um, an interaction, if that's what they want. You know, that's usually, you know, I think a male role to take the initiative. And so women who are taking the initiative are already seen in a, in a certain way or in a certain light. Um, but then, hey, you know, like I said, we have all these things that are happening where people are struggling to meet people. And then we also had this thing, this this big pandemic, do you remember that? Like, I mean, it's not over entirely, but it feels in some ways like it never happened to begin with. But we had this COVID pandemic, which kept everyone in their homes uh, and, you know, only able to travel within a small radius. And people wanted to still date. People still wanted to meet people. People still wanted their lives to go on. And so I suppose if we look at some of the statistics of uptake of social media and dating apps during the pandemic, we'll see that, you know, that also precipitated a lot of uptake. But nonetheless, we go back to the issues. And I will now quote this, this article that I talked about, which is from um, worth.com. And they quote, say, 
The fact that Bumble, Tinder, and other US-born businesses that call themselves dating apps and societies where the mere concept of dating, at least by Western standards, is completely different exposes their Achilles heel. This type of one-size-fits-all approach will not work in the rich mosaic of cultures you will use fine spread across much of Africa and Asia. So in this article, they are basically dismissing the premise of uh, how Bumble and Tinder work, which is, again, yeah, this very uniform idea of this is how everybody dates, so this will work everywhere. It's a template, we'll take it, and it will work across the board. Well, it's a template that works largely in the Western world, and even then, you know, I think people have their reservations about how seriously people take dating apps to begin with. But it starts to fracture a little bit more when you get into more conservative societies which have very different dating cultures. Um, I'll read again another excerpt from that article which says, Tinder's struggle in the developing world are not limited to India. And, you know, the writer had mentioned the issues of India and, and penetrating the Indian culture. Um, in 2019, Tinder's parent company, Match Group, acquired Harmonica, an Egypt-based dating platform, in the hopes that it would gain a presence across the Muslim world. However, neither Tinder nor any other Western-based peer has yet to crack the top 20 social media apps in emerging Muslim-majority markets. And that's also an important thing to note, that a lot of countries would have their own forms of dating apps, which would be more culturally, contextual, and appropriate. Um, and so you will find that, you know, different, different countries, different places um, will create their own dating culture that they want to package in a digital way. Um, and so it might be that they have um, an Instagram, Instagram account or a Facebook profile and basically people sign up for something and then they go on uh, physical speed dates or something, or it can be something that's specifically, you know, it's for a specific demographic of people, you know, if they're Muslim, if they're Christian, if they're whatever. And that's not to say such apps don't exist in the Western world, but I think that those apps become more um, likely to succeed than the mainstream kind of dating apps because they are more contextual. And because I suppose people want their culture, they want to meet someone where they don't have to start with questions about, you know, what's your religion? What are your values? If you're already on a platform that you know is more about or more geared towards your culture, then, you know, you might feel safer there. But I think this thing of speed dating and physical engagement is another big thing where, if you're in societies and cultures where the physical realm is still very important, uh, then if you have some sort of model that might start in the digital space but lead to physical interactions, that might some, somewhat be more interesting or more engaging for uh, a community that is not used to engaging or interacting entirely online. And, you know, as much as there's a lot of digital shift and movement, I can say this quite safely, I think. Uh, for instance, for a country like Zimbabwe, where I am from, that there's still things that you just, even with the COVID pandemic, you just don't see becoming digitized in the ways that they're digitized in other places. I, I constantly talk about this, actually, with one of my friends. 
And, you know, um, if you're looking for a carpenter or, you know, anything, even an electrician or something like that, I mean, one of the easiest ways to look for one, obviously you can find one if you go online um, and, you know, search and things like that. But then if you move around a neighborhood and you look on the trees, there is usually signage there. Someone's put up a sign saying, I'm an electrician, call me on this number. Um, you know, I'm a carpenter, call me on this number. And I, I always wonder if that's still very effective for people. But the truth is I've found people that I've worked with or have engaged with from that signage. And so some people just will never digitize in that way because I guess it's, it's a culture. It's something that still somewhat works and, you know, people hold on to things that somewhat still work for them. Uh, but then, you know, obviously everything is moving more digitally, but there's still a market for people who are almost entirely engaging with the physical realm to find a market of other people who do not refer to the digital for skills or expertise or who would refer to the digital but still might look at the tree and say, hey, that sounds like a decent carpenter. Let me call him and find out, you know, what his costs are. So I think there's still that duality of life that people still live in that makes just doing 100% digital engagement that, that much more daunting or strange or weird. Um, and then I think also, you know, you have to think about some of the dynamics of these dating apps. Like I said, Bumble uh, is oriented towards women making the first move in the engagement. And in societies where, you know, men are these patriarchs who are supposed to take the lead, you know, they're leaders, they're supposed to go out and find their partner, you know, lead the courtship process, etc. I think those kinds of things do put a lot of men off. They would not want to engage in a situation where a woman had the chance or a woman basically leads the conversation and says, I am interested and I'm going to say hello first. It's, I think it's jarring for a lot of men. And then it's also just, it's just not the orientation that they have to dating. And that's not how they've been socialized to understand the dating sequence. So there is less, I guess, uh, interest in being on an application that doesn't that does not replicate what would happen in your offline context, uh, and so again that speaks to these cultural differences and how people interact and engage with the digital based on what they know and experience and see in the physical. Now you know, am I making a big enough point here about anything? Not really. I'm just having a conversation. You know, something that came to my head something that's food for thought, something I would really like to see more research about because um, I, I would like to give a shout out to, I think she's Professor, Professor Tanya Bosch, um, whose article I read on the conversation where she did a study about dating apps in South Africa. And um, I got a, quite a lot of learning from that. And um, I think we could do with more information about 
dating apps in these different contexts. And I think the other thing that I'd just like to leave you with is obviously in contexts where um, homophobia is so very rampant, the importance of queer people being able to engage on queer um, applications. For instance, uh, Grindr is one of those spaces that, uh, as I said before, it's, it's the one that I have heard people having conversations about and heard people having conversations about its importance to 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 their survival and into to their intimacies because otherwise there are no physical spaces that feel safe for a lot of people to find partners or to express their sexuality uh, publicly so i think in certain ways there's these things that make these public uh forms of intimacy very difficult for many people but then they are also uh can be safe spaces for people who don't have the luxury of the physical environment as a safe space for them to express who they are however there's also those pitfalls where we know that um, a lot of these dating apps have been used to track people who are known to be gay or to be um, suspected to be gay and then um, that information is used against them in a public way, you know, they're named and shamed, um, or, you know, people just go on those apps to, to act like they are, they, they are actually looking for someone, but then they want to out people or they want to hurt or harm them. And so that's still a very dangerous place that these dating apps can occupy where they offer some levels of freedom and liberation but then there's also all this unsafety and risk that comes with publicly declaring your sexuality in environments that are very hostile towards it so I mean it's a big melting pot of different things that are happening at the same time no definitive answers offered just a conversation which I hope you find interesting and that you would want to think a little bit more about. If you are a researcher, wouldn't we love to see more work around that? I would be so fascinated to read more reports about online dating and um, perceptions um, of online dating apps in different African countries. But for now, I just plant the seed and I hope that it grows and I look forward to basking in the shade of whatever comes out of it. Until next time, please do take care of yourself and have a good one. Thank you for listening.